Thanks for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figner. Carrie is associate professor of philosophy at the University of Iowa. My guest today is Steve Gimbel. Steve is professor of philosophy and former Edwin T. Johnson and Cynthia Shearer Johnson Distinguished Teaching Chair in the Humanities at Gettysburg College in Pennsylvania. Steve works in a broad range of subfields, from philosophy of physics to ethics, and his latest book shows that his research extends even further than this. His new book is titled, Isn't That Clever? A Philosophical Account of Humor and Comedy. It was published earlier this year by Routledge. Now, humor and and its related phenomena, jesting, joking around, goofing, and so on, pervade the human experience and are plausibly regarded as necessary features of interpersonal interactions. As one would expect, these pervasive phenomena occasion philosophical questions. What renders some item or event humorous? Are funny jokes objectively funny? As humor is a mode of interacting with others, can it be deployed irresponsibly? Can it be harmful and impermissible? What's the relation, we might ask, between humor and comedy? What's a comedian? So in his new book, Stephen Gimbel presents a philosophical account of humor that addresses many of the aforementioned questions. He develops a view according to which an act is humorous if and only if it is a conspicuous, intentional act of playful cleverness. This account of humor then enables Gimbel to address a full palette of questions concerning jokes, comedy, and the behavior of professional comedians. As usual, there's a lot to talk about, but also as usual, let's begin with the guest. Hey, Steve. How you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Oh, it is great, great, great to be with you. Well, fabulous. Um, why don't you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> so I am a philosopher of physics when I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, but I have tenure, so I don't have to do what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh I've been a, a comedy nerd my whole life since I was a, a little kid and found my, my dad's George Carlin and Alan Sherman albums. And I was living a normal life as a philosopher until I turned 40. Now, I don't know if the whole midlife crisis thing is real or not, but I decided I was going to try to cut it off at the pass. And so I thought, okay, what am I going to do? And I thought, well, you know... I teach ethics, so, you know, an affair is just out. You know, I, I drive so slowly that Amish people give me the finger, so, you know, uh, a sports car would just be ironic. And then I was driving home one day from the office. So I teach at Gettysburg, but I live over the line in Maryland. I live on the, the farm my wife grew up on. And as I'm driving home, I'm just, you know, scanning through the channels. And I came across the Hard Rock Station out of Baltimore, and they had this teaser right before a commercial said, when we come back, we've got an ethical question for you. All right, you got me. And this was the time when gas first spiked to $3 a gallon, which was just unheard of. And it was the story of this gas station in Indiana that misprogrammed their pump. So they were charging three one-hundredths of a penny per gallon. And no one told them until about 3.30 in the afternoon. So they had been giving away gas the whole day, and the 
conversation was about whether it was okay to take the gas and not tell them. And as you'd expect for a hard rock station, it was a lousy conversation. And I don't know why I did it, but the next day from work, I sent an email to the show's producer saying, I'm a philosopher. I'd be happy to come in if you want to have a better conversation. And for some reason, he wrote back. <laughs> and so later in the week, there I was on drive time radio. And I went in and I decided, you know what? I'm just going to be irreverent. They're expecting some stodgy philosophy professor. They had no idea who I was. And so we just had a blast. They, they had me slated for just one segment. They kept me on the entire afternoon. <laughs> and at the end, the DJ, who had been a, you know, a, a fixture of the local stand-up uh, community for years, looks at me with narrow eyes and said, you ever done stand-up? And I thought, wow. Here's a real comedian asking me. And so that sort of lit the fuse. So I found an open mic for my 40th birthday, had family, friends, former students, colleagues in this comedy club. I did my seven minutes and I caught the bug. So for about the next five years, I was fairly regularly performing at uh, open mics, a few paid gigs here and there around the, the Baltimore, D.C. area. And what I noticed, you know, hanging out at the bars, talking with the other comedians, that what the comedians were saying about humor was very different from what the philosophers were saying about humor. And that led me to think, hey, maybe there's something here. Maybe I need to think about humor differently. And that's what led to this book. Well, um it's always nice to see um, uh, our philosophical reflections have uh, origins in our own uh, experiences. Um, I should say uh, to the audience that um, the the book um, isn't that clever. Uh, contains. <laughs> you should clarify that that's the title. That's the title, right? <laughs> uh, the, uh, the the book contains a lot of um, your own material. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, both, uh, I should say. Um, both uh, as cited as examples to be discussed, but also uh, in the course of just the discussion, uh, there are lots of jokes that are um, sometimes quite overt, sometimes a little bit more subtle in the book. Um, so uh, the, the book is, uh, you know, I found myself laughing several times uh, in reading it, um, and some of the footnotes are jokes, and there's, there's, there's a lot going on there. So um, uh, now... Let's get to the to the book, if that if that is OK with you. Absolutely. All right. So um, now uh, your view uh, and one of the first items on the agenda of the book is to make the case um, for thinking that humor uh, and, and you mean by humor is sort of the, the more inclusive category like uh, joking and gags in general um, uh, 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 the, what goes on in professional comedy clubs and so on. This is all, these are all instantiations of humor. Um, you claim that humor is objective. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, why you think that's the case? Because I take it that, you know, uh, many of our listeners will, will, uh, will have learned from, you know, possibly uh, graduate student seminars and things that, you know, the, even the, the, the realists, even the platonic realists about morality tend to be non-realists about humor. Absolutely. And you will often hear, especially from non-technicians, well, you know, of course, humor is subjective. Right. 
But what they really mean by that is that taste in humor is subjective. Now, I mean, it's absolutely trivial that different people find different things funny. And the first thing I want to do is something that's very unusual within the philosophy of humor community, and that is separate off that which is funny from that which is humorous. That's really the first thing I learned from watching these comedians is that humor is a speech act that is teleological. It has a goal, but that goal, while it's most often to generate mirth or laughter, isn't always. That is, humor is used for a lot of purposes. You know, I can tell a joke in order to relax a student. I can tell a joke in order to put myself above the student. I could tell a joke in order to put the student down. I could tell a joke in order to seem more attractive to someone I would like to appeal to. I could make a joke in order to seem less attractive to someone who's appealing to me. So we can use jokes in lots of different ways. But whether something is a joke or is not a joke is very different from whether someone likes the joke. So while it's certainly true that some people like fish and some people hate fish, it's an objective fact that we can eat fish. Fish is food. Vegetarians may say there are certain kinds of food I don't eat, but they're not denying that they're food. In the same way, I argue that humor is an objective fact of the matter. That is, humorous speech acts do something fundamentally different than normal speech acts. They are aesthetic instead of being content-bearing often. I mean, they may bear content, but when we joke, we are doing something that is a very particular kind of behavior, and when we say to someone, look, I was only joking, we can have an actual argument about that fact. That seems to indicate that there is an objective fact of the matter as to whether one was joking or not. If I say something about my wife's cooking, I hope she's not listening, right? You say, look, I was only joking. No, you weren't. You really hate this, you know, tofu, quinoa, kale roll-up. No, 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 no. It was just a joke, sweetie. And we can have an argument. And there is a fact of the matter. There's a point of contention there. Was I joking or was I expressing an actual sentiment? And so when something is a joke is an objective fact of the world. Now, the question then becomes, what kind of thing is it? Okay, so a joke is a particular kind of thing. What is it that makes an utterance a joke? So when we argue whether I was only joking, how do we go about determining whether that claim is true or false? And that's what leads us into humor theory. Great. So and one of the um, additional sort of uh, considerations that you you raise in in the course of this part of the argument um, sort of does have a a uh, an analog in the, the the arguments about the objectivity of of, of morality. Right. Um, you know, sometimes non-realists about morality point to, you know, the, all of the different all the disagreement, the differences in moral judgment. And moral um, people who tend towards moral realism sometimes say, well, wait a minute, but look at all the agreement, too. <laughs> right. right. And so you've got this uh, this discussion in, in, in this part of the book where you say, wait, a minute, like, look, the, we have to start thinking or taking at least seriously the view that humor is an objective, you know, feature of certain kinds of performances, because after all, it's not just that people are, you know, 
bending over in laughter as they're walking down the street <laughs> in, in ways that we can't understand. Right. When you see somebody reacting to something in a way that suggests to them that they find it humorous, you think that by looking in the direction that they're looking, you can discover something <laughs> that's going on in the world. Right. Exactly. And if you go to a comedy club, everyone laughs at everyone who laughs, laughs at the same time at the same thing. It's not comic whack-a-mole where people are laughing at random times. We know what a joke is. And we can even say, you know what? I did not find that joke funny. But right. you were saying that was a joke, and we'll all agree that it was a joke. But now we'll have the second aesthetic question, right? Was right. it a good joke or not? But in order for that question to even be meaningful, we have to all agree from step one that it was a joke to be judged by joking standards. Right, right, right. Good. So there's a, it may, there's an intelligible difference between a, a good joke and a bad joke, uh, right. and bad jokes are not like – um, counterfeit money, right? Bad jokes are a kind of joke, right? <laughs> um, exactly. Uh, or at least so I hope, given yeah. that I tell many of them. <laughs> um, so fabulous. Um, so um, the first item on the agenda then was uh, to establish that there's something objective in the uh, in the subject matter, uh, which is always a nice way to start a book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to have an object of study when yeah. you're going to study it. <laughs> That's right. So um, so your view, uh, as I mentioned in the uh, in the, the introduction, um, your view is that um, uh, humor is uh, what makes some item, a uh, performance, an event, uh, an, an act, um, uh, an instance of humor has to do with its being a certain kind of um, a manifestation of a certain kind of cleverness. Sometimes you say sort of a playful cleverness. It uh, looks like it's got to be intentional. Uh, it also looks like it's got to be in some sense publicly or, 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 or some, in some sense publicly accessible. Um, can you sort of tell us sort of the basic contours of the what we might call the cleverness theory of humor? Sure. So there are four traditional theories of humor that go way back, right? Superiority, that is an act of humor all laughing is laughing at. So all humor in some sense, jokes have a but, and you're always putting someone down. There's Freud and his relief theory, Hutchison before that, that humor is the building up of energy, which is suddenly released. You have Aristotle's play theory, that is that that humor is playing with something, words, concepts, and then the big one these days is incongruity theory, right? That it's it's either the uh, appreciation or the settling of an incongruity. And as I was thinking about all of these, and the first step that's often taken in the literature these days is, well, you know, these aren't mutually exclusive. And so let's see if we could take a piece from here and a piece from there. And a lot of these views just struck me as sort of Frankenstein's monster. Right. Especially when I'd be talking to these other comedians, we'd be sitting, comedy always happens in bars, and the audience is up front, the comedians sit at the bar from the back. And if you think philosophers are critical, man, comedians are even more brutal. <laughs> and what was really fascinating was listening to them critique each other. And what was interesting to me is you would think that, okay, comedy is a teleological activity where the goal is to generate laughter from the audience. That seems common sense. How could that be wrong? But what I was noticing is that 
they would judge every single joke. They would critique it. But the positive critiques were not necessarily the jokes that got the biggest laughs. Sometimes the jokes that got a lot of laughs were deeply criticized. The, the term in the, the comedic uh, community is hack. You don't want your jokes to be hack. And what was so fascinating to me was that there was a disconnect between which jokes really killed and which jokes received the highest praise from the comedians. And so I thought, okay, if it isn't just about getting laughs, what makes a good joke? What is it that they're looking for in a joke? And what I realized was it was cleverness. Now that, you know, it's one of those things that when you say it, it sounds utterly trivial. Well, of course, a joke should be clever. But, you know, if you're an analytic philosopher, the first thing you're going to say is, well, what do you mean by clever? Mm -hmm. And so I started to try to figure out what do we mean when we call something clever, especially given that there are multiple ways in which it could express cleverness. And what I realized was happening was that there was a sort of virtue epistemology that was happening in the conversations of the comedians, that what makes a joke clever is that it embodies a sort of cognitive virtue. And by that, what I mean is something that would be in the real world a good thing to have in terms of your ability to think. But when it is displayed in joke world and, you know, we'll want to distinguish between those two is that it's basically just put on display like a museum object. It's put under glass for everyone to admire your cleverness. So what you're doing if you're Jerry Seinfeld is, here, look, see how I see things differently, right? That would clearly be a cognitive virtue, right? If you're Stephen Wright or Mitch Hedberg, look, see how I can make the normal seem absurd. If you're... You know, any other sort of comedian, what you're doing in some way is you're demonstrating, if you're good, that you have some sort of turn of mind, which, if used in the real world, would be helpful. But what you're doing is you're displaying it aesthetically within joke world. So I, I take a, a notion from William Fry, who, who termed, uh, this sort of boundary around joke world, a play frame. Mm -hmm. That is, humor is an aesthetic act. It's, it's an artistic act. And we perform art on a stage, either literally in the case of stand-up comedy or metaphorically, right? So think about when I'm going to tell you a joke. So, right, notice what I just did. I bracketed this part of our conversation mm -hmm. saying it's no longer normal conversation, I have just launched into a performance. And at that point, the question is, what are you doing on the stage? And what I realized is what the comedians were trying to do on the stage was to display a sort of cleverness, display some sort of epistemic virtue. And if it really was conveyed, that's when they said, oh, that was a good joke. If it wasn't, if it was just an obvious line or something that had been done a thousand times, then no, that's hack, even if it got a huge laugh. So it may have met, you know, the behavioral goal of generating laughter, but it wasn't a quality joke. And so what I did in launching what is really the first 
completely new humor theory in quite a while was to look at a recent advance in epistemology, virtue epistemology, and take it as the foundation for this view of humor. Good. Right. And it seems like a a winning move uh, to me, by the way. (laughs) Um, <laughs> uh, That's unusual for a philosopher. <laughs> but um, uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the constituent virtues? I mean, now you've got a, an account in the book of you know how you know w- what goes into uh, this, uh, what goes into the kind of cleverness uh, that um, that comedy and, and, and successful joke telling uh, um, uh, requires. So can you tell us a little bit more about the? The, the, the virtue aspect of it? Sure. So I think just like in virtue ethics, where we don't want, you know, a fixed, complete list of these are the virtues, there are any number of ways in which if your mind was oriented in this fashion, then you would have an advantage in determining what to reasonably believe. So something like pattern recognition. Right. The idea is if you can see what has happened and you can see what's about to come, that's clearly a cognitive advantage. And what we have in jokes is exactly the same sort of thing or open mindedness. Right. That is somebody who doesn't get trapped in the old way of seeing observational humor is clearly, you know, designed around this. Breadth of knowledge, being well read is clearly a cognitive virtue. Think of Dennis Miller, right, with his mm-hmm. constant allusions to everything from classical literature to pop culture to sports, right? Uh, metaphor creation, right? If you can model things well, then you're probably going to be able to reason about things you don't know, right? Scientific reasoning is often very model-based. So, too, is a lot of humor, right, where we translate into another system. Uh, creativity, you know, these sorts of attention to detail, right? If you look at, you know, say, you know, Rich Little or Frank Caliendo, right, all of a sudden you hear, oh, you're right, that sort of speech pattern or some sort of little hitch within the voice and suddenly they sound exactly like someone right now when they're performing it's just funny but if you have that attention to detail it probably is going to help you as a philosopher or as an engineer so there are many ways in which the human mind can be used well and when you display those qualities in this purely aesthetic way That's what I want to argue that humor is. Now, oftentimes it'll get laughs. Sometimes it won't. Right. Again, I want to separate laughter generation from humor. Right. Uh, The comedians that I would see, you know, it's it's a it's a dysfunctional lot. And, you know, here are people who are on stage making people happy. And so they would frequently find romantic partners and then the romantic partners would see what they're like in real life and they would frequently cease to be romantic partners <laughs> and this would often happen at the bar and you would see them use humor sometimes as a weapon sometimes as a wall and all of these were clearly humor they were the sorts of things they would say on stage but they were clearly not intended to generate laughter they might be intended to hurt someone they might be intended to sort of you know, like a turtle pull their head in the shell and protect themselves. So it was clear that it wasn't just laughter generation, 
but it was the same sort of cleverness that was being expressed. And so that's when I thought, ah, that's what's really going on here in humor is it's this aesthetic display of these virtues, these qualities that would be wonderful to have outside of joke world, but placed on display in joke world. Good. So let me does the view that let me just ask if this is a um, uh, one of the advantages of this kind of cleverness account. Um, and this I, I'm not remembering whether this comes up in the book, though. I, I think there's maybe a sentence devoted to it. Um, you know, as a casual observer um, uh, in my own and my wife's cases, um, I've been um, for a long time sort of I've marveled at the fact that Jim Gaffigan kills us every time <laughs> with the Hot Pockets thing. Yes. Um, so, you know, we've seen him live. We've listened to him on the radio. And the Hot Pockets thing is always funny. Um, and, you know, I've often wondered, like, why do I keep, you know, it's okay, one thing to find it funny in the first instance. Um, but then to hear him say the very same thing the next year and find it funny. And you know it's coming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Even when, even when you know it's coming. I was like, well, what explains that? It's not, I'm not, I am actually, I'm not just laughing out of politeness or because that's just what is expected when you hear a, a comedian do his signature bit. Um, but like, no, I keep finding this funny. And it's not funny when I just repeat what he says. Right. <laughs> right. Uh, it's funny yeah. when he says it. And it, it is, it, it's funny the fifth time. Even. Exactly. Now, so the cleverness theory, if part of what humor, I mean, let's leave off the, 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 the fact that I keep laughing, but that I keep appreciating the bit. Exactly. Seems to, um, seems to be well accounted for, I guess, in the cleverness view, right? It is, uh, I can keep, I can appreciate the same display of cleverness again and again. Is that right? I think that's exactly right. And I think that's actually one of the weak points in a lot of the standard theories. So if you take incongruity theory, the idea that humor is the exposure of an incongruity. Now, in verbal jokes, you have two parts. You have a setup that leads you in one direction and a punchline that leads you in a different direction. Right. So knock, knock. Right. Who's there? <laughs> to. <laughs> to who? No, to whom? <laughs> Right now, so the idea is you have the setup that you think is coming, and then the punchline that makes you completely re-understand how the setup was. So you have a, a primary interpretation in the setup, where the mind is necessarily led in one direction to make sense of this joke world in one way, and then you have a punchline that makes you go, "Oh, that way doesn't work. I have to reinterpret it according to a secondary interpretation," and it's that switch. That the incongruity theorists, and this is the really the reigning champ, this is the received view, that incongruity and that understanding of the sort of gestalt switch is where the humor is located. But if that's true, then exactly as you point out, we shouldn't find things funny multiple times because the second time you hear it, you know what the switch is going to be. And so you begin thinking in the secondary interpretation, you won't get the switch, so the joke shouldn't work. And this is true, I think, in the other views as well. Whereas in mine, <clears throat> excuse me, what you're doing when you hear that joke the second, fifth, eighteenth time is you aren't following through the joke 
in the same way. You aren't experiencing it in the same way. But what you are doing is marveling at the structure, marveling at the wording, marveling at the playfulness, at the pivot that's happening. You see it as a whole. It's like when you watch, you know, The Sting more than once. You know that twist in the end. But it's still so wonderful because you appreciate how well it was set up. Right. And so, yeah, what you're doing, I think, in re-listening to those bits that you just love. I was at the, the Baseball Hall of Fame with my kids a couple of years ago, and we sat through Abbott and Costello's Who's On First at least six times. <laughs> I've heard it hundreds of times, but it is just that good. Right. And – with the cleverness account, you now understand why you would want to sit because you now know what it is you're looking at and appreciating and approving of in the bit. Whereas I think with the other standard approaches to humor, it does seem a little mystifying why we would continue to like the same jokes. Good. So one other sort of one other one other thought um, uh, I think cuts in your favor. Well, I think pretty clearly cuts in your favor. Um um, so there are cases also where um, the, 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 the humorous entity or object is something very complicated and complex. So think about a film like This is Spinal Tap. Yes. Where part of, you know, part of the explanation, I hope, for why I've watched it over 5,000 times um, is – that on multiple viewings, you see that every minute of that film contains multiple gags that are tied together in particular ways. And the, you know, the these go to 11 line is funny. But the setup for it, the things in the background, everything about that scene contributes in a way to the overall humor of the film, right? Yes. Um, and so you can, on the cleverness account, I guess you can explain sort of how the entire movie is the sort of primary object, you might say. The humorous object is the film. It contains lots of embedded moments of humor, contains lots of jokes as well, but it's the entire sort of, you might say, aesthetic object, you know, the uh, the 90-something or 90-plus-something minute film that's the object and there's a kind of cleverness that it as a whole uh, sort of manifests. On your exactly. view, I guess we get to say that kind of thing, right? <laughs> exactly. And now you can, you know, and next time you're watching Spinal Tap, say, look, I'm working. This is philosophy. <laughs> Uh, that wouldn't be – I've, I've had that thought uh, many, many times even before reading your book. <laughs> um, good. So that's the, 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 that uh, explains the virtues, so to speak, of the cleverness theory, I think. Um, well played. Uh, fantastic. Um, so – but in, in your description, you also um, uh, talked about the cleverness theory sort of uh, inclining us towards a view about – humor as involving a certain kind of performance and a uh, certain kind of activity. Um, and um, you've got a, 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 um, an analysis of how jokes work. Now, you're, you're quick to point out that humor is the broader category. You're not talking about humor simply as jokes, but jokes are uh, the sort of uh, the things most ready to hand when we start thinking about humor. Um, and you've got a kind of um, speech act view 
uh, about how jokes work. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how those sort of familiar, you know, illocutionary, perlocutionary uh, categories uh, work when it comes to talking about jokes? Absolutely. So, right, the idea is that in philosophy of humor, we often use jokes as sort of the prototypical example of humor, in part because it's often analytic, linguistic comedian uh, philosophers who do this work. And the nice thing about jokes is that you can put a number next to it, you can indent it, put it in italics, and there is something to study. So verbal jokes are the easiest object to study. And so they have, I think, wrongly been elevated as sort of the prototypical notion of a gag, of you know, of an instance of humor, but they are surely the most common. And so, yeah, I thought we need to really deal with jokes in and of themselves. Now, what's interesting to me about jokes is that they are a very interesting, peculiar behavioral sort of uh, endeavor. And so the first thing I immediately thought of when I started to think about how we behave in terms of our joking behavior, well, Grice, of course, just comes immediately to mind. And I started realizing that, you know, when you look at Grice's maxims, they in no way describe accurately joking behavior. We violate them, all four of them, completely during joking behavior, and yet jokes are clearly cooperative. And so I sort of think, well, there is, you know, there are some people who tell jokes badly. There are some people who listen to jokes badly, and they commit, you know, the sort of faux pas that you can tell what they're doing wrong. And so I thought, well, wait a minute. What's really interesting about Grice is that what he's describing is conversation in the normal context. So, for example, we're having a normal conversation. <laughs> You're asking questions. I'm answering them. I'm a philosopher, so, you know, maximum quantity may be violated. But the idea here is we're talking back and forth. But when I'm telling you a joke, I'm speaking. You will listen unless you're prompted. And when you are prompted, you will say what it is you're expected to say. So <clears throat> when I said to you earlier, knock, knock, and there was an uncomfortable pause, it was because you weren't behaving properly. <laughs> And I thought, isn't this interesting? What we do have is an internalized set of rules and behaviors, but it's different from normal conversation. And then it struck me that this sort of asymmetric conversation isn't that unusual. Take the classroom, right? In my classroom, I can talk whenever I want. The students talk when they are recognized. There's an asymmetric power relation there, and there's a sort of contractual behavioral arrangement there as well, but it's different from normal conversation. And so what we see in joking is this sort of asymmetric power relationship, right? At a wedding, for example, you know, again, a very asymmetric conversational relationship, right? There are very few times in the ceremony when you should be talking, Right. Unless you're the efficient. Right. That person gets to talk as much as he or she wants. So then I started thinking about jokes. And what's interesting is, unlike the classroom or the courtroom 
where there's clearly one person who possesses the power. In the case of joking, it's a dynamic conversational power relationship. So we begin our normal conversation as co-equals, right? We're speaking and listening. We're hopefully, you know, obeying the maxims with respect to each other. But then what happens is in order for me to tell a joke, that would make me, in a sense, conversationally superior to you, which means you have to agree to give up some of your conversational power. It's your choice whether to do that or not. So think about how we introduce jokes. Want to hear a good one? So, oh, here's a great joke. Notice what we're doing is we're selling the joke. We're setting the joke off from the normal conversational context, and we're selling the joke. We're, we're cajoling the other person into willingly putting themselves in an inferior conversational position to us. Now, that person can say no. If I say you want to hear a good one, you can just go no, at which point I no longer will occupy the superior position, and we're still having normal conversation. You're saying, no, I will not be inferior to you. We are going to keep as co-equals in this conversation. But the instant you go, okay, you've assented to entering into the play frame, stepping into joke world. And once we step into joke world, the conversational dynamic is completely different. So when I asked, do you want to tell a joke, I am now placing myself beneath you conversationally. You have the power to say yes or no. The instant that you consent to hearing the joke, now the power relation flips. Now I become the more powerful person within the joking relation, and you become inferior. That is, you agree to play by certain rules, right? You will let me talk as much as I want. You will only speak when prompted. You will answer questions in the expected way. You won't try to guess the punchline to the joke. You'll just roll along with it. There's a whole structure for how we behave as joke tellers and as joke listeners. And we've engaged that in such a way that we have willingly put the joke teller as the more powerful member of the conversation. Then the punchline hits. And what happens is part of what creates the distinction is that the joke teller has something epistemic that the joke listener doesn't. That is knowledge of the joke. Hey, have you heard the one about, you know, the Pope Charlie Sheen and Martha Nussbaum walk into a bar? Right. And if you go, oh, yeah, I've heard that one then we're not going to enter into the joking relationship because you already know the joke. You can't be inferior to me. But if you haven't heard that one, now I know something you don't know, so you make yourself subordinate to me for the course of the joke. But the instant I hit the punchline and deliver it, now you know the joke too. So what that does is re-equalize us. That brings us back to equal power. But then you go beyond me because you now have the ability to judge me right? as a joke teller, as a person who selects jokes to tell, as someone who selects appropriate jokes to tell. And you can either laugh and praise me, or you can give me that look, or you could think, yeah, it's a good joke, but I would tell that better. So the idea is that what you have is this interesting 
dynamic situation with respect to conversational power where at first the joke listener has it, but then willingly gives it away so the joke teller is now superior. The joke teller tells the joke, which makes them equal in conversational power, but then the joke listener again assumes the superior position. So the reason the person would willingly subjugate them conversationally, themselves conversationally, is because A, they're going to come away with a new joke, and B, in the end, they will have the superior place of judging the joke teller. Right. So this sort of makes a nice segue into um, uh, sort of the in talking about joke telling in terms of these power dynamics and consenting and non-consenting. And um, uh, there's a whole chapter in the book that's devoted to sort of more ethical kinds of <laughs> questions about humor in general, not just joking. Right. Um, and um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Now, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of material there, but I didn't mean a lot of material for humor, although I guess some of Fair it enough. is uh, humorous material. Um, I guess there are a lot of philosophical questions there about um, sort of what the ethical dimensions of humor are, especially if it's the case, as I suppose it is, that a lot of humor behavior involves that kind of dynamic you were just describing, particularly in the case of joking behavior. Absolutely. Right. So the idea here, and here's where, in addition to Grice, I sort of pack in Austin as well, is that jokes have perlocutionary aims. They have goals. You're doing something with the joke. By telling the joke, I'm trying to achieve a goal. Now, I want to distinguish between what I call pure jokes. And a pure joke is a joke whose only goal is to generate laughter in my audience. An impure joke is a joke in which I may or may not want to generate laughter, but I'm trying to achieve something in the real world by telling this joke. So I may be telling the joke in the classroom in order to establish a certain sort of pedagogical environment, or I may be telling this joke in order to establish my superiority to someone else. I may be telling this joke in order to seem more approachable. And so on the one hand, if you have a joke that is a pure joke, then it is nothing but an aesthetic act. If it's an impure joke, now it's an act in the real world. And it can be judged ethically just like any other joke in the real world. So if my purpose of telling this joke was to further a harmful stereotype, then, yeah, you're a bigot for telling that joke. And so if a joke is a tool towards a goal in the real world, then we ought to judge it like any other act. But the hard part is, what do we do with jokes that are pure jokes, right? We have all sorts of, you know, works of art that depict horribly immoral behavior, and yet we don't necessarily condemn the work of art, right? If, you know, you watch Law and Order, you know, it's amazing if there's anyone left in New York City. I yeah. mean, there are just corpses everywhere. And we just, we see the murder and we just like, okay, yeah, 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 okay, there was a murder now. It doesn't bother us the way it would bother us if you know, we walk past the body. So there is an art that we, we see as just a work of art. We sort of give it that moral pass. And so the question is with humor, is it there as well? So if it is a pure joke, 
when is it that I should be allowed to tell it? Now, in the case of, you know, the, the obvious interesting cases are ethnic and racial jokes, right? Do you get the free pass by saying, I was only joking, right? And what I want to argue there is that the most important word there isn't joking, right? Yeah, okay, I get it, you were joking. Is the word only applicable, right? Were you only joking? Right. So if you were joking and trying to tell a truth, right, which we do all the time, look at political satire. Right. Those are jokes, but they're jokes that are meant rhetorically. Right. They are meant to convince you to a certain set of political beliefs, even though they're jokes. So they were joking, but they weren't only joking. So to say I was only joking is to say, look, this was just an aesthetic act designed to display cleverness. Look how clever this joke is, right? So in the case of you know ethnic jokes, what we often do is we use these – I hesitate to use the word stereotype because that is a morally loaded term. So I prefer the term icon, right? That is we take groups and we develop these caricatures, flattened caricatures that usually have between one and three properties only. Right. So if I say Jew, you think, OK, cheap, clever. Right. If I say Irish, you think, OK, drunk. If I say Polish, you think stupid, dirty. Right. That's what the jokes right, are about. They are these icons. And the question is, at what point is invoking these icons morally problematic? Now, there are those who argue that any time you do, that the icons come from stereotypes, and by using these jokes, you're just entrenching and ossifying these stereotypes, and that's a social harm. Those jokes should never be told. On the far extreme, to the other end, you have the comedians who want to say, look, it's just joking. Everybody gets it, right? We should be able to joke about anyone, anytime. Those in the middle say, well, it seems like there are some jokes that are safe and there's some jokes that are over the line. And so the question there is, how ought we draw the line? Now, the usual place that you find this line drawn is, well, look, if you're a member of the group, that gives you the right to tell the jokes, but those outside can't. Right. And this is, you know, the famous Seinfeld episode with the dentist who converts in <laughs> order to jokes. be able to tell the jokes. Right. And the idea there is that Look, no one would want to harm themselves, and so if I tell Jewish jokes, that's okay, because clearly I'm not out as a Jew to harm Jews, right? The problem there, of course, is that there are plenty of instances where we can playfully tell jokes about each other in ways that, you know, build friendships, build trust, that, you know, display mutual respect, you know, the millennials, you know, my students will often draw a very different line. Well, there's the punching up, punching down. Right. Right. That is, OK, you are allowed to joke about anyone who has social power above you, but never allowed to tell jokes about groups that have social power below you. That is, humor can be used as a weapon, but all use of that weapon is not problematic. It's morally acceptable if you use that weapon to level the playing field, to bring about social justice. And so punching up levels the playing field. Punching down is just bullying. I want to draw a different line. I say, look, you know, this is just an aesthetic act, 
Maybe. What's really opaque is the intention of the Joker. Is this joke? And we all have know these jokes that are, you know, ethnic jokes of a sort that are just, that's just a funny joke. And you feel a little guilty laughing at them, right? My my favorite is a guy hiking through the woods, and he comes to a river, and he looks up. He looks down, can't find a bridge, can't find any place to cross. And he looks across, and there's a blonde on the other side. So he yells to the blonde, hey, can you tell me to get how, how – killing my punchline. Hey, can you tell me how to get to the other side of the river? And the blonde looks up and says, you are on the other side of the river. Now, yeah, I like that joke. Now – you know, blonde jokes tend to be misogynistic, right? And for blondes, I'll explain what that word means, right? So the idea huh. is that, you know, what we're doing with that joke was – that was a pure joke. I only told that joke not because I think blonde-haired people are less intelligent, especially blonde-haired women. I told it because it's a clever joke. It's a well-crafted joke. But is that really why I told it? How do you know? And what I want to argue is there does seem to be a behavioral criterion there. If I tell that joke and the joke lands, you get that it's a joke and you find it funny, then you'll think, oh, okay, Steve told that joke because that's a funny joke. But if the joke dies, if the joke isn't found funny, you're left thinking, why would he tell that joke? What was he doing with that joke? Clearly it wasn't getting laughs because that's just not a funny joke. And so the idea is I may have intended it to be a pure joke, but because it failed aesthetically, you're now left to wonder what it was that was my actual intention of telling the joke. And so the idea here is what I want to argue is that joking is an inherently morally risky endeavor that is you may come in with one intention but if that joke fails you now inherit the sort of problematic moral baggage that would come with that joke that is that the person would hear that joke and think okay given that that joke isn't funny what implicature am i now led to and that implicature most likely is oh this is a misogynist. This is a bigot. And so when you tell these jokes, is there a way to determine whether it's okay to tell these jokes or not? Well, part of it, you just can't know from the outset. If it's not a darn funny joke, you're probably going to have problems with it. And there's a wonderful documentary out now whose name escapes me looking at humor in the Holocaust. And... There are a lot of Jewish comedians that are saying, look, you want to make fun of Hitler, go ahead, that's easy. But if you want to make a Holocaust joke, it better be a darn good joke. Right? And the example they, they often give, Sarah Silverman told this joke at uh, an award ceremony for Mel Brooks. She said, you know, what part of the Holocaust do Jews hate most? The cost. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, ooh. And Mel Brooks was interviewed later saying, that's – I would never have made that joke. And, you, know, you see him on camera laughing at it when it was delivered. But he's like, you know, if you want to go there, it better be that good. Right. And the idea being that it does seem you know, that 
instead of having ethics built into the aesthetics, what I want to argue is maybe there are some aesthetics built into the ethics. Well, let me – there's a lot – yeah. <laughs> We're philosophers, of um, Yeah, I'm, I'm um, looking at the – there's a – I've got a lot of thoughts about what you just said, um, uh, but let me but let me ask. Um, uh, to, you have a a chapter uh, in the book about comedy ethics, okay. by which you mean the ethics that uh, the ethical considerations and requirements and permissions and obligations and whatnot that apply specifically to professional joke tellers when they are enacting their professional role that is um uh comedy in 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 your book uh is is the term reserved for the activities of professional comedians um so um can you tell us a little bit about that chapter i mean again there's a lot that that comes up um and there's a discussion of dealing with hecklers for example a discussion of stealing jokes um so uh can you tell us a little bit about the action in that that chapter in particular Sure. So there does seem to be a difference between humor writ large, you know, which is the sort of thing that we can do in conversation with each other and comedy, which is a specific art form. There is a stage, there's a mic stand and a stool. And we do, in a certain way, seem to give the comedian a certain moral breadth that we don't give to each other in just our humor. Right. There does seem to be a certain role that comedy, whether it's stand up comedy or, you know, uh, a more scripted sort of sketch comedy or improv comedy. It does, as an art form, separate from the world that we go to see, it does raise other sorts of ethical questions. And like you say, one of them that I deal with is is hecklers. And what's interesting is that when you look at the two cases that really generated the most conversation publicly around humor ethics, it was Michael Richards and Daniel Tosh. And what both of them share in common is that what got them in trouble was not the telling of a particular joke. Both of them were dealing with hecklers. Now, comedians have a very straightforward ethos about dealing with hecklers, which is anything goes. They really think that, look, this heckler is not only endangering my set, right? That is, you know, the heckler just sort of destroys the flow, destroys the relationship with the audience, but how this set goes determines whether I get booked here, whether people buy my CDs. My entire livelihood is now threatened by this person by coming into the comedy club. There's a social contract. You know, the performer speaks, the audience listens. The performer tells a joke, the audience laughs or doesn't based upon whether they find it humorous or not. What the heckler does is usurp the performer's place in a certain sense, as the sovereign of the comedy club. So, you know, the mic is the royal scepter. As long as you hold the microphone, you are the one who speaks. What the heckler does is basically lead a revolution. Now, what's interesting is most people hate hecklers. 
because that you know you came to the club to have a few laughs, and now this schmuck has to start screaming, and so it starts with the audience actually being somewhat sympathetic towards the comedian. But the question is, how far can the comedian go? The comedians think that, you know, like a Hobbesian, you know, ruler, they have the complete right of nature. They can execute and they will do so viciously. But that doesn't seem right. And I think what you saw in the Richards and the Tosh cases is they did go too far in trying to deal with these hecklers. They did say things that even the sovereign didn't have the right to say. And so the question becomes an interesting one. Where is the line? How much power do we give the comedian to deal with the heckler? Clearly, they can be nasty. Clearly, we want them to shut down the heckler so that the show can continue. Well, usually we want that if the comedian is doing badly. And here's where I think it's important to argue that there are very different kinds of hecklers. I got heckled the first time at a club uh, down in Alexandria, Virginia, and it was a drunk woman who was very drunk, who was having a good time, and whose heckling came from a place where she thought these people were so funny because they were talking to her and she would just talk back. And so it was this odd situation where it was sort of a good-hearted heckle, Mm which you needed to shut down, but you couldn't be nasty because it was just clear to everyone else in the audience this was just a very drunk, sweet person. And so the dynamic was tricky. How do you get her to discontinue the behavior? So you need to stop her, but you can't do so in a way that's cruel. And so the question for heckler ethics is how can this relationship in which there is asymmetric power be dealt with in a way that is seen within the social contract of the comedy club to be fair and right? Now, again, I think comedians are wrong in thinking that they have complete power, but we do and should give them a good bit of latitude because what they are doing is, in a certain sense, comedic violence for the common good. Right. Um and what about stealing jokes? Oh, that's the big no-no. <laughs> so what's interesting is, you know, if you start a band, you can, you know, make your way by playing covers, right? You play other people's songs as you develop your own originals. But in comedy, the big no-no is joke theft. Material must be yours. So what makes comedy so hard is that you need to be both a joke writer and a joke performer. And what I noticed is that there were people who were good at one or the other. They were better performers. Man, they really had stage presence, but their material wasn't very clever. Then you had others who had really good material, but they just they, they, they didn't own it. They, they couldn't really bring the funny. And so the question then became, for me, it's like, well, theft seems to require a sense of ownership, right? That is, here is what I own, and here is when you've taken it. That is, here is what I have the right to. And so the question became, how do I know when my joke is a stolen joke? So that requires a notion of joke identity, 
right? When is your joke the same as my joke? Right. And when do you own your joke? So there are certain topics, you know, the differences between men and women that have been done so often that they're sort of village greens for comedians. Anyone is free to work there. But then there are others. If I started doing Hot Pocket jokes, even if they were different from Gaffigan's, wait, 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 wait. That's right. his shtick, right? You've now stolen the joke, even though the jokes I'm telling aren't necessarily his jokes. So the question philosophically becomes, what is it that you have the right to when you have written and performed a given joke? So this becomes a question of joke synonymy. When are two jokes the same joke? And an ethical sort of rights-based, how much real estate around a joke do you own once you've told it? And these are actually both really complex questions when you start playing with them. Right, and I guess that the – you know. Um they emerge in other areas as well, right? I mean, e even in the case of music, you can think of all kinds of cases where, like, well, what right. exactly is it, you know, <laughs> to right. steal a hook or exactly. to, or in filmmaking, you know, we filmmakers have this idea of homage, right? Exactly. Like, like when is it when is it ripping off versus homage, right? You know, how close can you get to Pulp Fiction before somebody says you're ripping off Tarantino? You're not performing an act of homage to him. Exactly. And I think you're right that this whole notion of intellectual property is really difficult because we're taking an enlightenment picture of property as things and applying it to non-things. Right. And you're right. I think this settles in comfortably in this whole set of questions that I think are going to be continuing grist for the intellectual mill. And I think comedy gives us a few interesting wrinkles on them. Well, Steve, you've been very, very generous with your time. And um, uh, so I thank you for that. But I also thank you for writing such a fabulous book. <laughs> Isn't that oh. clever? Um, I usually ask uh, uh, guests on the program what their next project is. So uh, what's your next project? <laughs> Uh, well, I'm what, what are you going to do for us next? <laughs> <laughs> I'm currently working on two things. One, Routledge, I am, I could not express my thanks for publishing the book enough. However, they did price it at $140, so please ask your librarian to order it. Yeah. Uh, I give talks, public talks, often on these sorts of subjects, so I'm working on a popular version just focusing on humor ethics, uh, which hopefully will be more affordable. Uh, and then I've had a long-term project that I've been putting off and putting off that I think I finally need to get to, a sort of popular social epistemology of logical positivism. I just want to tell some of the stories behind, you know, what's often lampooned as sort of soulless scientism. I mean, the stories of some of these folks are, are really touching. So my goal is to humanize Carnap. <laughs> uh, yes, which often gets treated as a joke. Uh, a man whose own wife referred to him as Carnap. Yes, this is absolutely <laughs> true. <laughs> um, well, that sounds fabulous. You know, I, I, I'll confess um, uh, to you and to whoever may still be listening that um, – you know, 
I think the logical positivists have gotten a really bad rap uh, in the um, the second half of the 20th century uh, and um, and the beginning of the 21st century. And um, there's a lot more there than philosophically, I think, than there than meets the eye. But also, I think you're right that the the stories of some of the characters are um, uh, not what I think many would expect, like the the prevalence of pretty radical political commitments among them. Exactly. And that's, in essence, part of what drove the philosophy, something that often gets lost in, in the current tellings. Right. Well, I'll keep an eye out for both of those projects. They sound fantastic. But for now, uh, Steve Gimbel, th- thanks for your time. Uh, and thank you, listeners, for joining us for our discussion uh, of Steve Gimbel's new book. The book is titled Isn't That Clever? A Philosophical Account of Humor and Comedy. It's published by Routledge. Take care and bye for now. Thank you.